John chapter 20 is our passage. Uh, last week we considered the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, fittingly for Resurrection Sunday, we will look at the account of his resurrection as recorded by the Apostle John. In John 20, verses 1 through 18. Let's listen to God's word. Now, in the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken, stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he took the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths laying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and the and one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that, she, that he had said these things to her. Amen. Bow with me again as we pray. Father, our God, we approach you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through your Holy Spirit. And we stop and we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the resurrected glory of Christ. We pray that you would help us to know the power of his resurrection so that by any means possible, we too might obtain the resurrection of the dead. O Lord, enlarge our hearts to see and love our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to glory in his work on our behalf. Help us as we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, of course, today is a special day. Even though every single Sunday we glory in Christ's resurrection, every single Lord's Day we 
properly give him the adoration, praise to his name because of his resurrection. Today is special because all around the world, churches are glorying in the resurrection. All around the world, we we join our voices with churches all around the world by, by saying he is risen. He is risen indeed. Easter is always a special day in some respect. We're recognizing that the resurrection is a historical event. You can mark it on a calendar. And it's not something that was uh, mythological. It's not something uh, that is just a myth or a fairy tale. But it's reality. It's history. But even as we gather today, Easter being a special day, a day in which we dress in our Sunday best, a day in which we gather with our friends and families, a day in which this is so full of joy and hope and inspiration. As we think about it this way, this account of the first Easter might stand out a little by contrast. As amazing as the resurrection is, as amazing as it is that Christ, a man, died and came back to life, it's equally amazing just how ordinary this first Easter morning was by comparison. Here we read that Mary Magdalene, she finds an empty tomb and she's confused. She's bewildered. Peter and John run to see what's happened, but after they see the burial clothes, it says they just went home. They went back to their homes. Then we see Mary, she looks inside. She sees two angels standing uh, in the tomb, but she's not struck with fear or wonder. She hardly even gives him notice. She even mistakes Jesus for the gardener. She sees three supernatural beings, and yet she still has no clue that anything special had happened. At first, first glance, this may not seem, this is not how we would expect the first Easter to go. Like, where is the excitement? Where's the fanfare? Where is the, the joy? I mean, even the words that Jesus speaks to her here. He doesn't tell her anything life-changing. He doesn't say to her, hey, now your own resurrection is secure. He doesn't tell her that I've been raised for your justification. Your sins are forgiven. Instead, he says, whoa, don't cling to me. And now go and tell others what has happened. My point is, given how special our Easter Sundays typically are, how full of joy and inspiration and hope they are, doesn't this seem like a stark contrast? Brethren, I'm sure you know that when we look closer, there's, of course, nothing really that's ordinary about this account. And yet so often in our day, all the hype and all the emotionalism and all the experience of our Easter Sundays Really, they swallow up what is truly amazing about this account. How the ordinary is truly amazing. Here, John focuses his account on this interaction with Mary. Something that would have been countercultural at the time. Women were not credible witnesses in the court of law. If you're trying to establish the facts of of a resurrection, you're not going to appear first to a woman. And then you have the fact of who this woman was, Mary Magdalene. She was a former prostitute. She is uh, the woman whom Jesus had cast seven demons out of. And yet Jesus reveals himself first to her. 
Not to the mighty and powerful of the world, not to the rulers of the world, not to the religious leaders of the world, not to the righteous of the world, not to the prophets of the world, not to the disciples. But he goes to this woman, this social outcast first, this known sinner, someone who had a reputation for being wicked. And brethren, what I want you to see here, though. Is that this account with Mary gives us a picture of who the Lord came to save. It gives us a picture of the ordinary way in which the kingdom of God advances. And I believe that's relevant to, to wherever you are at in life today. No matter what is going on in your life. You don't ultimately need the emotional high of an Easter Sunday. You don't ultimately need some sort of special, glorious experience of God's might and power. You don't need, ultimately, to be emotionally moved and inspired for the days ahead. What you need today is what you need every Sunday. It's what Mary, in her grief, needed as well. The loving embrace of a Savior who meets you in the midst of life's sorrows. Where through his presence and his word, he calms your fears. He heals your sorrows. He transforms your mourning into dancing. That's what we see in this text this morning. That's what we find in this very ordinary first Easter morning. Now, to break this down, I want to think about three things from this passage. I want us to consider three things. We see here, first... The authenticity of Christ's resurrection. <clears throat> the authenticity of Christ's resurrection. That's the, the picture that John paints for us first. He sets the context for us. He wants us to know that what, we, what he is accounting is historical fact. And that is very, very important. Again, the resurrection isn't a myth. The resurrection wasn't a spiritual resurrection where Jesus rose like a ghost or something. The resurrection wasn't just a idealistic or wishful thinking on the part of the disciples. John is clear. The scriptures are clear. Jesus was a true human being who died and then rose to life three days later. This is important, of course, when we get to the other parts of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, we read that if Christ didn't die from the dead, then we're still in our sins and our faith is in vain. And Christianity is a scam. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's the fundamental reason why we believe that God's word and God's promises are true. Only Christianity has tied the, the essence of the faith to an act in history itself. And if that act didn't happen, if it could be disproven, then God himself could be shown, as it were, to be a liar. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So John writes, so that we know that these are facts. These are historical events. Here in verse 1, we read that while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. The other Gospels mention that uh, Mary came with several other women, but John skips over that because he wants to focus on how this affected Mary individually. We'll consider that in a moment. She comes to the tomb. She finds that the stone had been taken away naturally. Then she runs away, uh, kind of panics to tell Peter and John that 
someone has taken the Lord. Um, if you'll remember, uh, Jesus was buried in um, um, a brand new tomb, verse uh, 41 of chapter 19. Uh, Isaiah speaks of how he was buried in a rich man's tomb. <clears throat> so grave robbery in those days was a real threat, uh, particularly of such a, a rich or a, a prestigious type of tomb. Not only this, of course, we know the Jews hated Jesus, and it's reasonable to suspect that someone maybe stole his body to disfigure it or to, to bring shame upon uh, his family and so on. So she's scared of these things. Resurrection doesn't even enter her mind. So she runs and tells Peter and John. And then they run and they race to the tomb. John beat him to it. But for some reason, he looks in and uh, he does not enter. But we have Peter, you know, in full character here as the zealous one. He goes into the tomb and he finds the linen cloth laying there. And he finds the, the face cloth folded up in its place. You see, these are important details. You have first two male witnesses. This is credible, admissible uh, evidence in a court of law. You have the fact that thieves would have never taken the time to unwrap the body. And certainly if they did unwrap the body, they certainly wouldn't have neatly folded up the claws, uh, clothes and laid them there. If you think back to the resurrection of Lazarus back in John 11, you know, when Jesus calls him forth, he came stumbling out of the tomb, still wrapped up. And Jesus actually tells the crowd, uh, go, um, untie him, let him go. So here, by contrast, we have this orderly, purposeful scene. We have the presence of these discarded uh, clothes, which uh, assure us that, that his body was raised. It wasn't just a resurrection of the spirit. So given the facts then, what we read in verse 8 is that John finally goes in and he saw and he believed. He believed. He didn't believe everything, but he believed the facts at hand. We know he didn't believe everything yet because in verse 9 it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He didn't understand the resurrection from the scriptures just yet, but he could certainly see the facts with his eyes. This is important for us. John is saying, look, I didn't forcibly fit this into what we already knew the scriptures taught. No, it was when I was confronted with the facts and only later did I see that, yes, what was predicted in the Old Testament came about. That Jesus must Rise from the dead. If he is the Messiah, he must rise from the dead. If he is the Savior of the world, he must rise from the dead. If he is to save us from all his and our enemies, he must rise from the dead. If he is to be a fit and adequate and faithful high priest, Savior to us, he must rise from the dead. Brethren, that's a question we're faced with today as well. John's giving us the facts. John's telling us what happened on that day. John is pressing upon us. Do you believe the facts? 
Do you believe the testimony of the apostles? Do you believe the testimony of the apostles and and over 500 other witnesses who said and saw there was a man who lived and died and rose to live again? You know, we live in a day where the resurrection is laughed at, scoffed at. Some of the world's greatest minds just mock the notion that a man could truly die and come back to life. But here we have the testimony of God. Do you believe? Everything, everything depends upon that question and how you answer that question. I mean, do you hope for your own resurrection from the dead? Do you hope yourself to see life beyond the grave? Or is this life all there is? How you answer that question will determine such. Do you believe? John sets forth the authenticity of the resurrection that we too might believe. And yet it's amazing though, in verse 10, how do the disciples respond? They went back to their homes. Maybe they still feared the Jews and they thought that with the body gone they would be blamed. Maybe they didn't know what to do and they were just scared. But most specifically, John tells us that they went home because it is Mary and not them that had the deepest love for their for, for her Savior. She's the one who comes back weeping to the tomb in verse 11. And that leads us to our second point, the magnitude of Christ's love. We see the the authenticity of the resurrection, but that leads directly into the magnitude of Christ's love. Again, I don't want you to overlook the fact that Christ appears first to a woman and to a woman with a questionable reputation. But that is just a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture about how the Lord reveals himself to the weak and the despised and the least in the world's eyes, to the chief of sinners. That's the kind of Savior He is. He did not come to call the righteous. Sinners He came to save. Think then about the, what this interaction uh, reveals to us about His character. Um, in verse 12 and 13, we read that Mary is there at the tomb and she is weeping. <clears throat> J.C. Ryle comments here, He says, love to her gracious master would not let her leave the place where he had been lain. Love made her linger about the empty tomb. Love made her honor the last place where his precious body had been seen by mortal eyes. And love reaped for her a rich reward. The picture is here of her great love for Jesus, but also overwhelming grief. She's weeping so much so that she barely even notices the angels. She's overcome with her sorrow. She's sobbing with fear and uncertainty. And, and brethren, I, I hope this hits home a little bit. How often do we, you know, we learn, we yearn for, for love for Jesus, but so often we're overwhelmed with the grief and sorrows of this world. There's a picture of how the Lord acts and comforts his sorrowful saints. 
First, we have these angels. They, they gently probe her. They, they want her to stop and think. And they ask her in verse 13, why are you weeping? Another way of putting this might be, why are you still evaluating things from an earthly perspective? Why are you still walking by sight? Do you not see that he's not here? Do you not see us sitting like two cherubim above the mercy seat? Do you not realize that he is risen just like he said? It was still dark, but Mary herself is still a bit in the dark as well. She's stuck to her own fallible narrative. She even says again in response to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Even with the angels, even with their probing, no other possibility has entered her mind. But then in verse 14, having said this, she turned around. She sees Jesus. Although we're told that she does not recognize him. He too asks her this probing question. Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? In other words, Mary, what kind of Messiah are you expecting? Mary, why are you still evaluating things from the perspective of sin and sorrow in this world? And again, too often this is the case in our sorrows, isn't it? We often fail to see the bigger picture of what God has promised to do in his word. We often cling to the false narrative of our own perception. We often fixate our eyes on the things and circumstances of this life. We often wallow in our own pity and we neglect the loving embrace of our Lord, the means by which God comes to comfort his people. Even still, we need to ask why, why? Does she not recognize Jesus? Of course, practically speaking, we know it's dark. We know her eyes are full of tears. We know the last time that she saw Jesus, he was broken and bloody and and lifeless. We know that she's not expecting to see him at all. But of course, there's more here to why she didn't recognize Jesus. And that's John's point. What is it that changes everything? What is it that makes her recognize Jesus? We see in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. Jesus simply calls her by name and her eyes are opened. Calls her by name. Excuse me. Brother, this is one of the main points of John's gospel. That true faith is not by sight. True faith doesn't come just when you're confronted with the facts. True faith doesn't come through your own senses and perceptions and evaluations. True faith is when he calls you by name through his word. We read in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, they hear my voice, I call them by name. Brethren, there's an immensely personal aspect to the gospel. 
Just think about what it means to be on a first name basis with somebody. It denotes intimacy. It denotes fellowship. It it denotes familiarity with someone. To be on a first name basis with them. And we need to see here that Jesus did not die and rise for the whole wide world. A nameless, faceless mass of people. John wants us to see that Jesus died and rose for Mary. And for you and for me, if you believe. And in the gospel, he calls you by name. And that's what Jesus does here. He doesn't scold Mary for unbelief. He doesn't say, I told you so. He meets her in the midst of her grief. He speaks to her in her sorrow. And he makes himself known to her in an intimate personal way, a more powerful way, a more loving way than she could have ever imagined. That's the kind of Savior He is. That's the magnitude of His love on display. That's the the promise of His mere presence. The mere presence of the Lord and His love for us is what heals our sorrows and calms our fears and answers our uncertainties. And so the question we're faced with as well Right here is what kind of Messiah whom are, who, who are you seeking? Do you want one to come and slay all of your enemies? Right? Shame all the Democrats? Kill all of the evil, wicked people in this world? Are you looking for a Messiah to make all your wildest dreams come true? Give you the kind of life that you want here and now? What kind of Messiah are you seeking? Are you seeking the one who calls you by name and welcomes you into his arms? And that alone is enough. No matter what else happens in this life. That's the kind of Savior that he is. And we are to see his love for us in this narrative. Thirdly. Finally, let's consider the completion of Christ's triumph. The completion of his triumph. So we see the authenticity of his resurrection, the magnitude of his love, the completion of his triumph. Here in verse 16, as soon as Mary hears the Lord call her by name, she calls him Rabboni, means teacher. With this, it's clear that um, she still doesn't quite understand what's happened here. She's still a bit in the dark about the implications of the resurrection. Jesus is still an earthly teacher to her. She thinks things are just going to go back to the way they were before. We know this for certain because of what happens next. In verse 17, he says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Of course, there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus says this, but I think the answer is clear enough on the face of it. Don't cling to me. It doesn't have anything to do with with not touching him. The word denotes clinging, holding on tenaciously, a a death grip, as it were. And, And this is natural. After three days of mourning, suddenly the one whom you loved returns from the dead. She's probably hanging on for dear life. She's probably saying, I'm never going to let you go. So Christ, with these words, is making it clear things are not just back to the way they were before. This isn't like Lazarus. 
Lazarus, who, who rose and went back to normal life. I'm no longer your teacher, your, your rabbi, the one that you're going to follow around. So by saying, I have not yet ascended, Jesus is essentially saying, don't, don't get too close to me. Physically. I still have work to do. Don't get too close to my earthly presence because I still must ascend. I still must finish my mission. Here, this points us to the completion of Christ's triumph because without the ascension, the resurrection is no help to us. Jesus says in John 16, 7, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus must enter the presence of God and rule and reign and intercede on our behalf. He must ascend to the presence of God in order to pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people and upon his church. So to quote John Owen here, he says, Jesus weans her off himself precisely so she will look after and trust unto the promise of the Holy Spirit, which comes upon his ascension. Brethren, this teaches us that, yes, while it was a great privilege to know Jesus Christ in the flesh when he walked the earth, his permanent presence among us and the greater union and communion that we have in him comes not with him being physically present on earth, but through the gift of the Holy Spirit that he pours out upon his ascension. This is why you and me and every other believer enjoys a communion with Jesus in a far greater way than even the disciples enjoyed when Jesus walked the earth. It's because we have the Holy Spirit. And we know this for sure because of what he says in verse 17. Do not cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. This is amazing language. The first time he calls the disciples, my brothers. Now, based upon his completed work with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, there is a new family of God created. He says, my father, your father, my God, your God. There is a new fellowship. There is a new relationship. There is a new union between Christ and his people and them with one another because of his resurrected work and because he is ascending to pour out the Holy Spirit. Now he wasn't just teacher. Now they were family. Jesus had paid for their sin. He had reconciled them to the Father and he is ascending to give the Holy Spirit to unite the body of Christ together as one. So he calls Mary to see that he needs to complete his triumph, that he needs to send the Holy Spirit and that through the Holy Spirit, a living communion of of, of between the father and his children is created in a union between one another as well in the body of Christ. And that this is far superior than him, than her just clinging to his earthly presence there in that garden tomb. Brethren, the same is true in our day as well. When we think about the healing of our earthly sorrows and 
how we long to be with the Lord, let us not miss, let us not overlook the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how through the indwelling Spirit who brings about this union with Christ in one another, that is the ultimate earthly balm for all of our sorrows. The joy and the comfort and the hope of the resurrection comes to us through the Holy Spirit and through the union that we enjoy with God and Christ and with one another in the church. This is the completion of Christ's triumph in the resurrection. Well, brethren, as we work towards a conclusion, there's one last thing I want you to see from this text that kind of brings it all together. But to get there, we need to go back to where we began. We began by thinking about how this passage gives us a picture of who Jesus came to save. And I argued as well, it also gives us a picture of the ordinary way in which the kingdom of God advances. And this, brethren, I want you to see How in revealing himself first to Mary, his love is on display and he goes to the weak and the foolish and the despised of the world and how God delights to save the greatest, the chiefest of sinners. But more than that, have you thought about why Jesus reveals himself first to a woman? I believe that question is answered for us with a little note in verse 15. John tells us that Mary supposed him, Jesus, to be the gardener. Rather than this shows us that the resurrection took place in a garden. And with those words, our minds ought to immediately run back to the first garden. The Garden of Eden. The garden where humanity was created, but also the garden in which humanity fell into sin, bringing on the curse of sin and death. Adam and Eve failed to be the gardener that they were called to be. Adam specifically failed to work and keep that garden in obedience to his creator. Thus, in a beautiful, beautiful way, in a fitting way, humanity was lost in the garden, but humanity now is recreated in the resurrection in another garden as well. And the curse of sin and death is conquered. What was lost in the garden is now restored in the garden. And this particularly brings it into focus for why he gives this honor to Mary. Why he revealed himself first to Mary. Just as sin came into the world because the woman took the fruit being deceived and ate. In his great love, God so ordered things that immediately upon conquering that sin and curse, he goes to a woman first to reveal the good news of what has been done. That's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of people that he came to save. And even more than this, as we think about how does his kingdom advance? Well, what does he tell the woman to do? 
In verse 17, go to my brothers and say to them. And then verse 18, we see that she does just that. She brought to them the good news. Not only did Jesus reveal himself first to a woman, but she was also the first to receive the commission. Go and tell. Jesus made Mary Magdalene an apostle to the apostles. Jesus made Mary Magdalene the first one commissioned to carry the good news of the gospel. And she joyfully and she willingly obeys. This is the kind of savior that he is. This is not what we would expect. That, that a woman brought on the fall and he goes first to a woman. That a sinner, an incredibly sinner, a sinful woman is the first to see him. She's not a credible witness. She's got a questionable reputation. And she's not an apostle or a disciple, but she's the first one to give the receive the commission to go and tell. Brethren, I hope you see here the love that Christ has even to the chiefest of sinners. And I hope you see this Easter as you contemplate this for your own life and you think about how. Well, I'm too weak. I'm too broken. I'm too sorrowful. I'm too inconsistent. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not in a good place in life. God can choose better ways to spread the gospel. This account proves all of those things wrong. Mary's view of the Messiah was, was too small. But when she was confronted with his compassion, confronted with his love, everything changed. And that's why the question comes to you as well. Whom are you seeking? What kind of Messiah do you expect? Have you seen his love? Have you seen his compassion? Have you experienced his his presence in your suffering? Do you see his love for you? Do you see his love for the church? Do you see the ordinary ways in which he meets you in your sorrows? Have you responded by going and telling Easter isn't about life-changing experiences and overwhelming emotions. It's about the ordinary means of grace that God descends to us through His Spirit and through His Word. That He meets with you here and now through the simple and and, and otherwise despised by the world means of, of word and prayer and bread and wine In the context of the family of God, God's people. And he does this so that we might have our sins forgiven, our sorrows healed, our grief comforted, but also so that we too might go and tell. That we too might not keep this good news to ourselves, but we might go and say, he is risen, he is risen indeed Find reconciliation with God. Obtain for yourself the resurrection of the dead. This is the ordinary but very unordinary way in which he saves sinners and builds his kingdom. And God give us the grace today to see such things and respond with the love and with the obedience that we see in Mary here. Let us do that ourselves. Amen. Let's pray.